had some things that that I, I want to draw in this morning. Uh, if you've been a part of this study the whole time, one of the things that you've seen happen is things have happened in uh, kind of a repetitive way. And what I mean by that, Revelation 19. Yeah, if you're, if you're not finding it, Revelation 19. What I mean by that is there were three sets of seven, right? So we had the seven seals that nobody could open until the lamb that was slain uh, had the authority to do so, right? Okay, and then following the seven seals, there were seven trumpets, and those trumpets were a call to a partial judgment on Rome. And then following the seven trumpets, we saw seven bowls of wrath, right? And the bowls of wrath were the final judgment on Rome. It happened very quickly, but they were the final judgment on Rome. But what we also saw as we went through each of those sets of seven is repetitively there were kind of pauses or interjections into uh, into what was happening. And so after the sixth seal, there was the question, or at the end of the sixth seal, after talking about what was going to happen to Rome, the question was, who can make it? Who possibly can survive if this is if this is what's going to happen in our world. And so there was that pause where God identified or showed them that he knew who belonged to him and who was faithful, and they would be the ones who would, uh, who would make it through all of this, even though later on we find out that most of them died, uh, but, they, but they died victoriously. And so they received their reward in spite of what Rome was doing to them. When it came to the trumpets, uh, again, there was a pause, and the pause was to say what's going to happen to you. John, specifically, what's going to be your job as, as these partial judgments are coming on Rome? What's your job? What role do you have to fill and, and carry out in all of this? And it was to take what this message that God was given to him and continue to spread it and preach it and, and wrote it. He wrote it and spread it that way, too. But then he also talked about the church and their responsibility and their role to remain faithful, even as it looks like Rome is destroying them. And, and actually, it looks like at one point that they have been destroyed, and yet God if they would remain faithful, would provide for them. And then we had, again, this pause where, uh, where we had, you know, God went back and recanted history so that he could show them by what they already knew, remind them what they already knew, and then tells them some things that they did not know to remind them of the fact that God has always proven true. He has always known what's going on, and he has always had his promises fulfilled, and he has always proven true. Then we had that the seven bowls. Now, the thing about the bowls of wrath that were different than the other sevens were that they happened so quickly. It was like they were all poured out simultaneously as Rome's Rome's destruction would arrive. But after they're poured out, John's standing there in amazement as to uh, what has happened. And so there's another pause. And that pause has this angel uh, uh, interpreting, if you will, for him a lot of the things that he has that he has seen the apocalyptic visions he doesn't understand all of them and so the angel is kind of interpreting some of the things that he has seen but a couple of things that he has seen that come back into play as we continue this morning and we're at the end of that pause by the way uh, that last one where the angel is telling him what's going on and John's seeing some of it we're, we're starting with the visions again at this point uh, but uh, but a couple of things that have been highlighted is that there are two beasts. One of them, the first beast, is the emperor. The second beast is the uh, the high priesthood of emperor worship, and they receive their power or authority or motivation or whatever from the dragon. And the dragon is the devil. Okay, they're going to come back up again. And there was a battle. Remember, as these bowls of wrath are poured out, there was the the message got to the point where it said there's going to be this battle that's going to occur, and it's going to be led by frogs. Right? Remember that. He called it, remember what it's called? 
Armageddon, which means Mount of Megiddo. And I pointed out it can't be literal for many reasons, besides the fact it's in a book that's not literal, uh, is the fact that there's no place on earth called Mount, that is a mountain of Megiddo. There's a valley. And the valley has significance. And what it is, it's, it's kind of like the dividing line. Great victory, great defeat occurs at Megiddo. And so this is a statement by God that Rome's going to make this final stand to try to overcome God, and it's just not going to happen. Uh, but then it, then came that pause, and the pause was the interpretation of all that what was going on and the explanation of it. And so now as that ends, and John's seen all of this, he starts again with the visions, and we're back at this time frame where we've, before the pause, where we've seen the two beasts, and we've seen the dragon, and we've seen God there in rebellion against God, and people did not repent, especially the empire did not repent at the partial judgments, and so God's going to bring this wrath, but they're going to battle, right? So we're back in that time frame of this battle. Chapter 19, I want to start in verse 11. By the way, if you if you have a study Bible, a lot of times study Bibles will have like chapter headings or uh, section headings. Do you have those? Anybody have a heading that says anything here before verse 11? Advent of Christ. What else? Yeah. Okay. Mine says second coming of Christ. Okay. That's wrong. You know those headings are put in there by men, right? Okay, I'll show you why as we go through this. The time frame doesn't allow that to be the case. Okay, but let's start here in verse 11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, which again, we've seen this horse earlier, haven't we? Way back earlier in the book, there were four horses, and one of them was white, and it represented purity, and it also represented, remember, remember early in the seals, that's where it showed up. What, what were the seals about? The trumpets were partial judgments. The bowls of wrath are judgment. What were the seals? Anybody remember? It had to do with the churches, but what about them? All right. Here's what happened. And I'm kind of summarizing the six seals we read. But what happened was when he starts opening these seals, what happens is the gospel goes out further. And as the gospel goes out further, the consequence of the gospel going out further is persecution got worse. And so you got to this place to where as the gospel went further and further and further, that eventually you saw these souls who were under the altar who had been beheaded for their faith, who cried out to God, how long is it going to be before you answer this? So the seals were about what was the future of the church, what was going to, God was not trying to deceive them and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and take care of Rome, so everything's going to be great for you. No, these seals showed them the reality, and that is it's going to get worse. The white horse represented a carrying out of the gospel into more of the world, a greater part of the world, and the end result of that is things are going to get worse. So right here in the beginning of our reading today in verse 11 of 19, we've got this horseback. This horseback, that sounds bad. We have the return of the horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, you want to tell me who that is? That's Jesus, right? 
I mean, again, as we've talked about the interpretation of these signs as you go through the book, it's really very simple. You, you keep it in its first century context, what they understood it to mean. You keep it in the setting where in the text itself, sometimes the writers tell us, or the messengers or Jesus himself tell us what the signs mean. Or you look at the way that God used it earlier in the prophets and other writers of uh, the Old and New Testament. And so you get him seeing this writer that's on the the horse and you see a couple of signs that are very obvious such as the robe has the blood on it right and back in chapter 4 there was that lamb who had been sh- slain and that's the blood that he shed for his the sins of the world right so you get a little bit of a connection and he's called faithful and true so you get a little bit of a connection and then all of a sudden you get that his name is the word of god and you're reminded the very person who seen the vision began the book that he wrote by saying in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and was not anything without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. So John, who wrote that by inspiration, now sees that messenger and he knows who he is, right? So this is Jesus and he's on this victorious conquering horse. Uh, eyes like a flame of fire. We saw that back in chapter 1. The very first vision when John is on the island of Patmos for, uh, for the spread of the gospel because of his faith, he all of a sudden hears the voice like trumpets and he turns around and what's he see? He sees the Son of God and his eyes are like a flame of fire. Very penetrating. He knows. Okay, keep going. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So... The hosts of heaven, his, his providential angels are now uh, with him in this vision. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's leading this army, and he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth, which Again, he gets so messed up in this book when you're trying to think literal and you're thinking, okay, here's this warrior and he's on a horse and he's got a sword sticking out of his mouth. And that makes no sense whatsoever today. And it wouldn't have made sense in the first century either, which is, by the way, more important because that's when it was written, right? Okay, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what is spoken. What's spoken? Does the Hebrews writer say anything about a sword? What's it say? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even or piercing even to the soul and sunder, dividing the bones and marrow. The point is God's word is a sword. And it cuts out what needs to be cut out. And it delivers us from what needs to be delivered. And it conquers. And it goes all the way back to, again, I don't know how many times I've said this in this class. All the way back connecting to what Daniel did in Daniel chapter 2 with the visions that Nebuchadnezzar had about all those kingdoms that were going to be replaced by other kingdoms till you got to the last one. And in the days of Daniel 2.44, in the days of these kings, God will establish his kingdom. And that's because the vision was that this stone would come out of the mountain and break apart those kingdoms and that one would endure. And so the word of God... Jesus the Christ has the word of God being delivered or spoken. And what happens is it devours or includes or takes part in or overcomes everything that opposes it. 
Oh, and there's one more passage that's important. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says to him, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Then he goes on to talk about what it does, profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly or completely equipped. Okay, but we've talked about it. That word inspired doesn't mean what we use it to say. We talk about Shakespeare being inspired or some writer in the sports sections, an inspired writer. That's not what that word means. What does it mean? Literally, God breathed. And here we see John seeing the vision. And he's got a rider on it. And that rider has the, the, the names of the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And from his mouth, God breathes, comes a message. And that message will overcome any power in the world. Isn't that impressive? Keep going. I saw an angel standing in the sun. It's verse 17. And he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So now he's calling together scavengers. You know, the way God designed this earth, and I realize that over a period of the existence of mankind that there has been, let me be careful the way I say this, there have been changes. Uh, we call it microevolution. I hesitate to use that word because when you hear the word evolution, you think monkey to man. That's not what microevolution is about. It's about the fact that we adapt. And I'll prove it to you right now, right here. Indisputable evidence. How many people are on the face of the earth when the creation began? Okay. How many joined that one? Who is the one? Adam. How many joined him? One. Okay. I, th- I thought I threw you off there for just a second. So you got Adam and Eve. So you got a man and a woman. And did God create any more people? So everybody else came from Adam and Eve, right? The natural order was set into place and everybody else came from Adam and Eve. Yet we don't look the same. We don't look the same. And that's because over time people have moved to different parts of this world and dealt with different environments and different climate situations and over the course of time we have changed but we're still people at least most of us right we're still people and so the point that he's making here is that all of what has happened god has put into place for a purpose and the reason he put into place these vultures is to keep our earth clean right so they clean up they're scavengers they clean up just like the the sharks of the sea or whatever else they clean up Yeah. So the bottom line is he uses that picture that everybody knows is the picture to say Rome's carcass is going to be cleaned. She's going to fall. And by the way, isn't that what the messenger said, that angel during the pause? The first thing he says is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon the great's gone. Still there when John writes it. Still there when he sees the vision. But just like Jericho, it's as good as gone because God said it is. And so now the messenger calls together the scavengers to pick away the pieces that are left. To judge the nation. But there's more. 19. And I saw the beast. Now here's the problem with most people. We read that and we see the beast. And what do we think of? That's the devil, right? We read it and we think the beast, that's the devil. Or the 666. 
It's not. We already know the beast. In fact, just in case you still have struggled with it, let me start it again. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him. Now, we already saw this war before the pause, right? Who sat on the horse and against his army. So the war is against Jesus. Then the beast was captured, and with him, the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now we know which two beasts he's talking about, don't we? Isn't that a quote from chapter 13? When we saw one beast, which was the emperor ruling over the nation, and then another beast who got his authority from that first beast, who then forced people to get in a position where they had to worship him as a god, or else they couldn't survive, they couldn't buy or sell or produce or whatever. And where did they get their authority? From the dragon, which was the devil. He told us specifically, the dragon, which is the devil. By the way, just in case you missed it, you've got to get that one right, he says. It's the devil. So, so now he says, as Rome falls, what happens to its leader? What, what leader can survive the fall of his own nation? So here's the problem. For them, anyway. So he's connecting back. He's specifically quoting from and connecting back to chapter 13, right? That's so that his readers will also connect back and remember what chapter 13 was about. Not just that the emperor was a beast who got his authority from the devil. Not just that the high priest of emperor worship got his authority from the emperor and forced people to follow him. But when you got down to the very end of that chapter, he said, Here is wisdom. Let he who hears understand and know the mark is the mark of a man. Right? 666, the number of man. The number seven is the number of God. The number six is the number of man. Three of them means complete, right? So he is completely, and he is man, he is man, he is man, completely and holy man. I don't care what the emperor tells you, he's not God. I don't care what the high priest tells you, the emperor's not God. No matter what he can do to fool you, he's not God. So now here you get into chapter 19, and here's what God promises. Guess what? Well, the birds are eating the nation. God's dealing with the emperor and his high priest. And they're judged. Oh, but there's still somebody left. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the nation is fallen. Now here comes the next part. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. And just in case you don't know, this is, this is the character that repeatedly, when he comes up, God doesn't take a chance on you misunderstanding who it is. Laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, that connects you back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, we're going to get back to that last part just in a little bit, but I want to tell you, it is very sad to me that this verse is so abused because I think it's one of the most powerful statements in the whole book for us today. Uh, The abuse is what we believe or what people in the religious world believe, and most of the commentators you would read, is that, you know, there's going to be this, uh, this 
rapture and the people are going to be taken away and we're going to have seven years of just terrible conditions down here on the earth and then there's going to be a battle of Armageddon and then there'll be God will establish again the throne of Jerusalem throne of Jesus in Jerusalem in a literal sense for a literal thousand years and then will come the end and that's why we always want to be allies with uh, Israel okay and I got nothing against Israel I think they're good allies but I'm not planning to move there someday but that's, that's not what this passage is saying. That's not even our context. You've got to pull it out of every... Think about our timeline. This is why it's so important as we've gone through this book that I've tried to keep us in a timeline. Think about our timeline. This vision that he's seeing here happens at the same time that this, this messenger Jesus on this horse comes out and spreads the gospel, which has been prevented, hasn't it? Because of the emperor's... So now he spreads it out. It's like an explosion of the gospel going out into the world again. And at the same time, he takes down the beast, which is the emperor, and the second beast, which is the high priest, and the vultures eat the carcass of Rome. So if so, if you keep it in its timeline, it cannot be future today, can it? The answer is no, it can't. Because it happens at the fall of Rome. Now, I'm going to be... You know, I could be wrong. I hope you know that. I could be wrong about some things. I am, I have been once uh, or so. Uh, but here's the thing. I, I don't, I don't, there's not a whole lot of people that agree with me in this. So I want to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. But if you stay in its t- timeline and you stay in its context, there's, there's two real views. One view is that it's going to happen in our future. One view is that it started on the day of Pentecost. And then my view And my view is in the middle. And my view is if you keep the timeline going, it started at the fall of Rome. See, what happened was, and this is what God kept telling us as he went through this book, in my view, and I I don't want to be dogmatic about this. I don't think you've got to get this part right to go to heaven, okay? Uh, But in my view, what God was saying through all of this is, you're going to make it through all of this, and when you do, there will never again be a power that will oppose Christianity like Rome. Never. By the way, I would hasten to add that includes Islam today. Just not going to happen like Rome happened. And that's because God bound Satan. By the way, that number, how do you come up with the number 1,000? Well, it's really pretty simple. Uh, you have a 10, which means you got your papers from way back before? A fullness of power. It's a complete power, right? God's control, right? Okay, and you have it, and you multiply that by another ten, you get this is a math class, and then you multiply that by another ten, and you get a thousand. And what's the number three represent? Yeah. So what he's saying here is, when God binds Satan, he is completely and wholly bound from. He tells you in the text from deceiving the worlds anymore. Now that's a hard thing for us to grasp because we think, well, the devil's got the whole world deceived, doesn't he? No, he really doesn't. We've chosen what we've, what we've become in this world. We've chosen it. And here's how I know. When you go back through the Old Testament, and especially from Mount Sinai forward with the Israelites and they became a law, what purpose was there in God telling them, you know, I want you to bring this unblemished bull and this unblemished lamb, and I want you to bring the turtle doves, and I want you to bring your 10% of your grain? What was the purpose of any of that? Did, did any of it, did any of the blood of the bulls and the goats get rid of a single sin? So why sacrifice every day? Because God told them to. Okay, now the second question. Why did he tell them to? 
Why did he, why did he want to make that? Remember we talked about, as we went through that part of, uh, of Exodus and Leviticus, uh, and Deuteronomy, all of that kind of connected into it, how the priesthood had the perfect garments on, right? They had to be just right, but then when you looked at what they were doing, they had all these wash basins and these altars, and they're killing all these animals, and it's got to be amazingly bloody. What's the point? Is God just wanting them to be as filthy as possible, or is he showing them really how bad sin is? That's what he's doing, isn't it? So every day, over and over and over, and then you've got the the Day of Atonement, and then you've got the, the Jubilee and the... You know, everything that connects, it's all showing mankind. But here's the thing. I can, and I don't want you to think that I'm cold. I can kill an animal and eat it for supper and be happy about it. Because it's an animal. But when Jesus came to the earth and he lived a sinless life and he is the son of God in the flesh... And Satan did everything in his power to destroy him. And he goes to the cross, which, by the way, he couldn't destroy him. But he goes to the cross willingly. And everything that happens to him, he allows to have happen. And he dies on the cross the way that he dies. That's a different picture, isn't it? All those sacrifices are pointing to him. We're not deceived anymore. You want to know what the consequences of sin look like? Go look at the cross. Right. Right. And and that is the theme of Hebrews about better. <laughs> So not only the better blood, not only the better sacrifice, but the better life that was lived in payment for the greater even of the suffering. Uh, so we're not deceived anymore is the point. Uh, we're not deceived. There is, you know, the emperor's not God. The devil can't deceive us into any of that anymore. The sacrifice of Jesus shows the consequences of sin. The victory of, G- of God over Rome shows the world is not going to win. I don't understand I don't even understand why we want it to be. I don't understand these people that believe that, that there's going to be a world power someday and then God's going to wipe them out and we're going to live so victoriously here on this earth. Why? Why do you want that? I mean, I, I have no doubt that most of us have good lives. I think we probably do. I do. But is that what you want for eternity? Or what God's offering? But there's more. We're going to come back to that be released for a little while here in just a minute. Because we read that and we say, see, that's going to happen at the end. That when you get up one morning and everything in the world's falling apart, it's because God released the devil. And that's a sign that we're just about to be judged. Okay? That's what people say, right? Okay, here we go. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God... We saw them before, way back in the fourth seal. How long, God? The souls that had been beheaded were under the altar in heaven, saying, How long? Now he sees them again, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's the answer. How long is it going to take before you do this? And God says, I'm going to, uh, I, I've, I've done it. 
Rome's down. I have avenged your death. And so they're victorious. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we'll talk about that again. Remember, you've got to keep it in our time frame of, of the fall of Rome, right? So you've got all these people who are beheaded and they are suffering. Well, they're not suffering, but they're frustrated in the fact that Rome has not been defeated. And they're saying, how long? And God takes down Rome and they get their reward. But here's the thing. Luke chapter 16 contains within it a, an account. And it's an account, it's much like the pause in the book of Revelation where God was going back through history and telling them about things that they already knew about. But he also told them about the, the things they didn't know about, right? We talked about that, how the, there was this battle between God and the devil or the messengers, I guess, between Michael and the messengers of Satan over Moses' body. You remember that? Did I lose everybody all of a sudden? You're looking confused. Well, he told them about things that they didn't know had happened. Okay, Luke chapter 16 is one of those times in which God told them things that they didn't understand or know had happened. They knew part of it. You got two people who are alive. One of them is very wealthy. Don't even know his name, but he's very wealthy. But there's another guy, and the other guy is incredibly poor. We know his name. His name's Lazarus. And what we know about him is in his poverty, he's sick too, by the way, and the best part of his day is laying out there in front of that rich man's gate, hoping to get some crumbs, and the dog's coming and licking him sore, his sores. So that's the best part of his day. And uh, other than that, we don't know a whole lot about him except for he's faithful to God. The rich man, we don't know a whole lot about him except for we don't even know his name, but we know he's not faithful to God. Now all of a sudden we have death coming into the picture. And at this point of death, we read about this rich man, and all it tells us about him is he lifts up his eyes in torment, and he says, i got to have a, just a drop of water to get some kind of relief, and, and you know what? Somebody's got to go back and tell my family because I don't want them to come here, right? Okay. And then on the other side of this gulf, you have Lazarus, which the text tells us really not a whole lot about it after death. We get more about him before death, but after death, all we get is he was carried into the bosom of Abraham. Okay, but that place was called Hades. Both places, by the way, was called Hades. One of them is called paradise. One of them is called torment. They're in Hades. Hades is, means unseen. So we've got an unseen. In other words, nobody sees eternity, right? You don't see the soul after death, do you? Do you? No. But it's there. It's in one of two places. But those places, we are told, are temporary Hades is temporary and will be done away with at the end. Okay, but these souls that we just read about are not in Hades. They have become a part of reigning with God. So these souls that were beheaded or suffered persecution at the hands of Rome, lost their life because of their faith, have already received their reward. What about the rest of us? When we go into eternity or when we go into the afterlife... We wait. We wait in this place called Hades. But there's more. Now, we're going back to this release for a little while statement. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. See, there it is. And he'll go out to 
deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is at the sand of the sea. See, there it is. We know it now. Everybody's right. There's going to be this huge battle at the end of time, and Satan's going to be released, and you're going to wake up one day, and the whole world's going to go to pot because Satan's been released, and he's killing everybody. Mm-mm. No, there's more. That's not the end of this section here. They went up. Oh, wait, wait, let me point something out. Uh, released from the prison and will go out. What? But there's one little bit word there that's important. They will go out. What? To deceive. There's a difference in going out and deceive or going out to deceive, isn't there? What's the difference? One of them is your purpose. One of them is what you actually accomplish. Okay, finish it. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we have jumped, by the way, our timing, this thousand years we've jumped. And the, de- the devil will be released and he is thinking, has the devil ever known God's plan? That was a trick question. Yes and no. Yes and no. He knew enough of God's plan to fight it. He didn't know enough of God's plan to know that when he actually motivated the Romans and the Jews to reject Jesus, he was actually helping fulfill the actual plan of God, did he? He didn't, he didn't get that part of the plan. So when he's released, what his thinking is, I'm going back to battle. What's happening is he's being released for judgment. He's not being released where he can accomplish deceiving the worlds again. It's what he wants to do. That's what his plan is. That's what he thinks he's going to do. What God says is, here he comes out trying to deceive the world, and God says, that's the end of that. Lightning comes down and consumes them. That happened before, didn't it? With the prophet, people came out to oppose the prophet, thousands of them. Here comes lightning, destroys them. They all go back home, and the king sends more, right? Kills them again. Sends more. Kills them again. I don't care what your intentions are. If they're opposed to God, God's going to win. So the devil's been opposed to God from the very beginning, and now you get to this place after a thousand, well, not literally a thousand years, but after the Christian age has ended, after Rome has fallen and the Christian age has ended, all of a sudden the devil thinks, I'm finally going to win, and God says, nope, I've only let you out of the, the binding so that you can be judged. And what happens to you is you're thrown into not the temporary place anymore, is it? The lake which burns with fire and brimstone for ever. Okay. We may not finish Wednesday night. We'll see. We've run out of time this morning. We'll pick up there on Wednesday night. Maybe we'll be a little quicker Wednesday night, but we'll pick up there again then. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the blessings you provide to us and so thankful at this time for this message and revelation that your promises are always fulfilled, that you always know what's going on and you're always in control. Help us to trust what you know in your wisdom. Help us to trust what you can do in your power and not to depend upon ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.